Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. There was a time when sea beasts would ravage our shores. And no ship was safe on the sea. But those days are over. Today, valiant warriors battle the beasts far beyond the horizon. You're Jacob Holland, a weapon against nature's darkest design. And I'm joining your crew. Oh no, you ain't. Stowed away? Yeah. No, I like this kid. We're dropping you off at the nearest port. Hunting ship ain't no place for a kid. But you joined the ship when you were my age. Hold on, baby! And look at you now. That's not the same thing. Isn't it? No, it isn't. I see a fire in her. Same fire I saw in you. Monsters I can handle. We got it right where we want it. Wait, Jacob! That one. She'll be the death of me. Hmm. I swore I would do everything in my power to keep people safe. You can be a hero and still be wrong. The ocean has sent us its worst. Then we'll send it right back. Chris Williams, director and co-writer of Netflix original The Sea Beast, is our guest on this episode of Behind the Screen. This interview was recorded earlier in the season, but it should be noted that since then, the movie went on to become Netflix's most viewed animated feature. And more recently, Williams signed an overall deal with Netflix and is now working on two feature projects, including a CB sequel. An Oscar winner for Big Hero 6, Williams set his sea beast adventure on the open sea in a fictional period of tall ships and sea monsters. We'll delve into the making of this movie in today's episode. I'm Carolyn Giardina. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. So, Chris, welcome, and it is great to see you again. Thanks. Likewise, nice to see you again. Why don't we start, would you tell us a little bit about the story and the genesis of the story, which you wrote? Yeah, this is this is one of those movies where I feel like it, I have to go all the way back <laughs> to when I was a kid and the movies that I love the most, because I always loved those big, sprawling uh, adventure stories. And so, of course, as a kid, I love Star Wars. You know, you have to love Star Wars. But I responded to King Kong even more strongly. There was something about this, the idea of the uncharted island, the, the mysteries beyond the horizon that was so compelling to me. And then the idea of meeting this, this fearsome beast that was so 
so huge in scale and, and so and so formidable. Um, and yet the over the course of the story, you you form a real uh, connection and empathy uh, towards towards the creature. Um, that to me was just an incredible uh, a feat of storytelling. And so I loved I loved King Kong and I loved uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course. Uh, Clash the Titans, the original one, was a, a big one for me. And then later, Lawrence of Arabia. Um, these these movies where characters leave the known world and venture off into the unknown were always just invigorating to me, and 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 they really made me wanna to make movies and tell stories. And and so in the back of my mind, I've always thought I would love to try to tell uh, a, a pure action adventure story um, in, in in the spirit of one of those films. And and I also would then. Uh, I would I would see these these old maps these incomplete maps where they would have big swaths of open ocean and they would they would the map makers would populate the ocean with these really fantastic sea creatures and I'd look at these maps and think man that would make a great world for an animated movie and if no one else is going to do it then I guess I will and uh, and so that felt like a really great backdrop and a starting point um, and and from there I just started. Developing a story that 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 through many iterations and much collaboration over the course of years, uh, eventually uh, evolved into um, uh, the Sea Beast. So the story takes place in uh, a world very much like our own, with the technology of of maybe around 1700. Um, so it's the era of the tall sailing ships, and 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 the world resembles our own with one key difference, which is that the the sea monsters on the maps are real. And this has then given rise to uh, a new vocation, which is that of sea monster hunter. So are these these ships and crews that are designed to go out and 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 hunt and destroy sea monsters. And the 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 so much of the the movie takes place out in the open ocean on one of these ships. And uh, and and our one of our main characters is is Jacob Holland, who is a revered uh, legendary sea monster hunter. And and he is going to come to, into contact and and perhaps conflict with a young stowaway, Maisie Brumble, who desperately wants to uh, to live the life of a sea monster hunter herself. And and the the story sort of follows their exploits as they head off to pursue the the greatest and most fearsome of all the sea monsters, the Red Bluster. Uh, it's a, a young actor. Her name is uh, Zaris Angel Hader. And, uh, and, and she was such a find for us. I mean, all the actors inhabit the characters uh, so well that it's impossible at this point to imagine anyone else playing these characters. And she certainly makes uh, Maisie Brumble her own. We wanted someone who was younger. We didn't want to have, do one of those things where you have a, a, an adult actor playing younger. We wanted someone who was genuinely, genuinely young. It's a hard thing to, to fake, you know. Um, we wanted it to be a very natural performance. And yet at the same time, if you've seen the movie, she's put in some very difficult um, circumstances along the way. And, and it's very demanding from an acting standpoint. And, and it turns out that, that Zaris Angel was, I think, sophisticated beyond her years as an actor. And some of the, the scenes that I thought would be the most challenging, she really nailed. And she really connected with, the, with, this, with this character. And there were there are moments where she would she would hit an emotion that would have us in the booth literally in tears, you know, and and so it's just a remarkable performance. Do you want to talk about some of the themes in the movie? 
Yeah, absolutely. The And one of the things that I, I talked about with the crew and, and one of the things I believe is that a movie doesn't have to just be about one thing. Um, and it doesn't have to be so rigid that you're reinforcing one notion constantly. You can have multiple themes, but they should they should it, there should be um, a connection and they should talk to each other, I think. And you should have a sense of primarily uh, what you're trying to say in the course of the story. Um, and, and, I, and I also say at a certain point, once the movie's out there, people are invited to uh, take from it what they will. And, and, and once the movie's done and, and the audience receives it, their opinion of what it's about is just as valid as mine, right? Um, and, and I've heard people talk about what they took from the movie and, and, and I've heard sort of very different um, uh, expressions of that. And I think that's awesome. Um, in, in my mind, the primary thing that we were talking about was this notion of this cycle of aggression and, and violence that can be um, sort of uh, caused by uh, a, a, a desire for revenge or, or conquest and, and how this thing can be difficult, this cycle can be difficult to break away from and ways in which we can find common ground and, and break away from this aggression um, those are the sorts of things that we were, I think, dealing with in the course of the story. And unfortunately, there was, as we were developing the movie, there were some themes that almost became more and more relevant uh, a, a, over the course of the years of development. And uh, I wish it wasn't so, but but um, I think there are some some ideas in the in the story that that feel very timely. One of the things that we talk about is just the 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 nature of war and how difficult it is to um, once it started, how difficult it is to um, find peace and resolve those conflicts, and and it, and it examines certainly the 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 toll that it takes um, in ways that that uh, you know that that I think are are especially poignant um, uh, in, in light of the, the sort of the global news. So so yeah, it was uh, there were some some heavy ideas that the movie was taking on. Um, or at least that we were attempting to take on over the course of the story development. The idea that, 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 that powerful people can sometimes um, pit us against our, each other uh, for their own sort of personal gain uh, is something that we, um, that we talk about a little bit in the course of the story. Well, you created such a rich world. Would you like to talk about some of the research? Oh, yes. Yeah, because it was... I'll start by saying that, that for this movie, more than anything else I've ever worked on, the, the idea of immersion in this in, in the world, the, the idea of being taken to this place um, was going to be a big part of the experience of watching the movie. And so I really wanted to create a world that had a history that felt inhabited, that felt like there's a there's a big world that's that's that exists beyond the story that's being told. And that there's a world outside of the frame uh, of the movie. And so I would I would point to examples like Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones and Blade Runner as movies where I really felt a deep and immersive and realized world. And that's easy for the director to say, like, I want this to be. It, it, it falls to everyone else to have to, to, to sweat the small things and, and design and build this really comprehensive universe, you know? And it ends up being a, a product of lots of tiny decisions, you know? You have to sweat the small stuff. And, and it's a bit of a house of cards. If there's any one thing that you see that doesn't feel plausible or doesn't feel realized, or that, that thought didn't go into it, or that it doesn't have a history, the whole thing comes tumbling down and the spell is broken, right? So, so we really, in, 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 the, in the depth of the design of the architecture and the, and the costuming and just the feeling of, of, of ritual 
um, and, and, and culture on the ship, you had to get a sense that these, that these people have known each other for a long time and, there were, and that there were generations that came before. Um, you have to think in those terms in order to really build a really realized world. Um, but that was certainly my stated goal from the, from the very beginning. Well, let's talk about some details. Um, let's start with the ship. So the inevitable is the main ship in the story. What sort of research was involved in the design and the type of ship? Yeah, that, that was one of the main uh, tasks that we had to take on was to, is to um, understand better how these ships work so we're not faking it, right? So it involved me and, and, and design teams uh, going down to maritime museums and actually going out on these ships and, and, and being um, instructed about how they actually work and, 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 and what literally what ropes you need to pull if you want certain things to happen. And if the wind is coming from this direction and you, wanna, and you want to, to steer in this direction, what do you literally need to do? Um, and then just culturally, how does the, how does the ship operate? How does this organism of the ship and the crew work, work together, you know? Um, and, and so we really did have to, to, to get to know our stuff. And, and fortunately we had, um, someone named Gordon Lacko, who was the, one of the consultants on uh, master and commander, which is held up as one of the, the most, um, respected uh, depictions of life at sea by people who really know their stuff. And Gordon was so uh, knowledgeable and so passionate about these ships and about the, the seafaring life that he was a great resource as far as teaching us how the ships work um, and t- telling us about the, how, what, what the tactics would have been and what the, what the, what the weaponry might've been uh, and, and, and all the way down to the language and the customs on these ships. He was very, he was, a, he was an amazing resource. And, and I kept, deferring to him as far as sort of building up a, a plausible world. So what type of ship was it and what period would this ship have existed? We were a little fuzzy there. I think you could say anywhere between 1600 and 1700. Um, uh, we didn't want to nail it down to a particular year. We wanted a little bit of license because it is a fantasy world. Um, it's essentially what we wanted to think of it like it's very much like our world, but the one key difference being that, that the sea monsters on the maps are real and so how might that have affected the course of history, you know? Um, and so, but we, we roughly made it that period, 1600 to 1700. Um, and and we, we did get to spend time on the, the ship where they shot Master and Commander, which is moored down in, in San Diego. And that was a, a great learning experience. And what maybe some of our listeners um, might not be aware of, but rope is actually really difficult from an animation standpoint. Why don't you explain why rope was so difficult and how you tackled that challenge? Yeah, uh, I w- definitely this movie, I didn't learn any of the lessons of other movies that I've worked on. Um, if, you're, if you're embarking to make an animated movie, you absolutely should not set it on the water and you should try to avoid ropes because those are the two of the most challenging things. And I certainly did not learn my lesson from Moana, uh, which we, you know, a fair amount of Moana set on the <laughs> on the open ocean, and and Moana's boat had, I think, you know, like like eight or ten ropes on it, and those ropes almost, you know, sunk the entire production because they're so technolo- technologically challenging, um, and uh, they're a real pain, and and so we, but we knew that, right? And so as we then embarked to make this movie, we knew that ropes were going to be um, a challenge is so the, our, our, the, the folks on the technology side really attacked that problem and allowed us to, to really dress the ship with, with, with hundreds and hundreds of ropes 
um, and we had lots of interaction. And I'm told that that the reason why ropes primarily are so challenging is that they don't stretch at all, right? So they have to they 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 can move a lot, but they never stretch. And if they do start to stretch, then that gives the texture will give away that something is is funky there. Um, so the so the the technology. Uh, they have to develop to serve ropes is very specific. Um, but like I said, that they knew early on, uh, they read the script and they saw that ropes were going to be integral to this movie and, and they took it on. But um, there, were, there were lots of technological challenges in this movie on top of you know, what you would expect from, from any sort of large scale animated film. I know that for this one, uh, one thing I would share is that, that the, the, the team was aware that ropes could be a problem and they, they sort of took it on. And, and, and solved it. So it didn't ever feel like it was uh, restrictive. Um, the one thing that kind of blindsided us was the actual sales themselves and, and actually having a sales simulation that could convincingly fill with wind. Um, we wanted, for all of our scenes, we had a sense of the wind direction because we wanted the, the, the sailing to feel very accurate. And so the, the ship's maneuvers would have us um, uh, adjusting the, the rigging and the yard arms and the directions of the sails accordingly. And so the, the way in which the, the sails were filling with wind was, was constantly changing from shot to shot. And, and, and so that had to be convincing and plausible or, or again, the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. And that was a bit touch and go. It was fairly late in the process that we were able to um, create shots that had sails that were filling with wind that, that, that looked right. And uh, but once we did that, it was almost like no looking back. We knew we could we knew we could make the movie. This was animated at Imageworks. Correct? That's right. Yeah. Did they have to uh, develop some new software in order to do any of these tasks? I, I will say yes. I will preface by saying that I am not a very technologically savvy. Uh, I can barely work my phone. And so the, the good news is that I work with really smart people who, who really know their stuff. And, and uh, I mean, that's one of the things I love about animation is it's so collaborative and we're all so interdependent and, and no single person can articulate to you uh, how an animated movie gets made. I'm telling you, not one person can do that. We're so reliant on each other. And I am certainly <laughs> uh, reliant on these amazing um, uh, folks in technology that, that solve these problems. How exactly they solve the problems, I couldn't tell you. Um, but, but, you know, I, I can describe what the needs are, you know what I mean? I can, my job is to be able to talk about the movie or a scene or a moment and describe and try to align all of the creative and technological efforts towards those things. But after that point, I become very dependent <laughs> on the hundreds of artists and technicians and managers, uh, that make one of these movies. Well, you brought up the other big challenge, uh, from the animation standpoint in terms of the water. Would you like to just briefly describe for the uninitiated why water is so challenging? And I mean, it looked great. It was so realistic. Thank you. You know, and, and honestly, I'd love to if I say thank you like I did it. Like that's the directors are always guilty of saying thank you, uh, suggesting that, yeah, they were the ones that did it. Congratulations again, I, to the whole team. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm always very quick to say that the director always gets too much credit and that so much of, of my role is to be a conduit and to, to try to facilitate an environment where people feel comfortable, you know, bringing their their gifts and, and their ideas, and then and then as a conduit to sort of help these these amazing ideas and, and their talent to get up on the screen. That's that's the the lion's share of what my job is. Um, and uh, but thank you. Um, and uh, as as far as the water goes, 
Um, the one of the challenges is the fact that that it's hard enough to animate a character on solid ground, right? And but but the, it's it's like the ground is moving underneath the character all the time, and so they had to so the animators had to compensate for that. And there are times where and they had actually developed um, uh, some software that allowed for the the, uh, the the character to automatically compensate. You know how you just naturally shift your weight on a boat that's moving without really thinking about it. Our characters were essentially doing that at times if, if, the, if the waves really started rolling. So that was one of the ways that we dealt with it. Um, we, one of the things that, that I'd said early on is, and one of the complaints, complaints that I heard from people who uh, really know um, a lot about these ships and will, are quick to critique um, movies that depict life at sea, right? One of the complaints I hear is oftentimes it doesn't feel like they really shot it out in the open ocean. It feels like they shot it on a lake or in a, in a, in a sheltered bay because, because the water is so placid. Generally, when you go out in the open ocean, the waves are a lot bigger and choppier, right? Um, and so a lot of live action movies, they don't, they don't do that. They don't literally go out into the open ocean and you kind of feel it, right? So that was one of the complaints that I heard. So I wanted to, to try as best we could to, to even though it's a, it's a virtual world and a virtual ocean, to, to get that feeling of being really out at, out at sea. Um, and that meant bigger waves and it meant that it was going to have a bigger impact on the boats and the ships and therefore the characters. And so there's a real spillover effect, right? Um, and again, it's easy for me to say as a director, you know, I want, it to, I want the waves to be bigger. I want it to feel like it's the open ocean. It falls to everyone else to figure out how to execute that. And, 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 I, would, and I would say my opinion is that they did a great job. And, and another sort of thing that, that we um, were conscious, uh, conscious of is the fact that the creatures in the movie, these undersea creatures, are really big, and we and it was important to to sell the scale of these creatures, and and there's so many so many cues that help the audience sort of feel the scale, and there are things that can really betray the scale, right? And any one thing, and suddenly and suddenly the it, it, again the house of cards falls, and you break the spell, and and, and you don't believe in it anymore. And one of the things we knew is that if these if these creatures breach out of the water and then come back into the water, they're going to displace a ton of water, right? And so I was very I was very clear to our effects team like don't be afraid to to push a bunch of water and even if it obscures our creatures or the ship or some of the animation, don't be afraid of that. It's more important to be um, to be to be plausible and be true to the the dynamics of the water and the physics. And, and, and so there, there were times where I said, it's okay to let the effects be the star of this shot. You know, if that's what happens, then I'm okay with that. The most important thing was to have a feeling of, of I suppose, feeling of realism, even though it's a very virtual world. Would you tell us about the design of the Sea Beast? Yeah, yeah. The, um, uh, and you're talking about the main, the main monster, Red, right? Yes, about yeah. Red. <laughs> red is a very sort of um, a, a potent and powerful color. You know, we, we wanted we, we wanted to sort of feel like Red was the the most fearsome and legendary of all the monsters, um, and and we also like the idea of of pairing uh, Red as far as the color palette goes with the ship. So we we dyed the 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 ship's sails red and set up this idea that the, this this unconscious sense that there would be the, this inevitability to the conflict between the ultimate monster and the ultimate ship. Um, but as far as the design goes. It always starts with with research. Uh, we always start there. We don't just start um, uh, drawing. We want to understand the physiology of these creatures in our world first as best we can. 
So we looked at uh, sea lions and, and walruses and seals. Uh, we looked at penguins. We looked at whales. Uh, generally, we were focusing on creatures that um, can be on land, but also in the water, but are more comfortable in the water. And, and what, what, does that, what effect does that have on their physiology, right? And, and one of the things that we saw right away was that if you're going to spend a lot of your time in the water, you have to be very streamlined in your design, right? You have to, you have to be as frictionless as possible to be able to push through the water without expending too much energy. And so there are certain physiological things that, that you, you have as a starting point. And that would inform the skeleton and the, and the musculature of the creature. Um, and, and so we have that as a baseline. And then once we understand their structure and the way they move, then we invite our designers to really bring their imagination to bear and, and start to iterate and do hundreds of designs of what, of what the creature could possibly look, at, look like. But we always, we always have one foot in, in, in the research and in what makes practical sense. And if you veer too far away from that, the audience will feel that. And again, it will break the spell. One of the things we knew about Red is that she was going to become a major character in the story. And so there were a lot of boxes that we had to check. Uh, initially, we we're setting her up as the most fearsome and legendary of all the sea monsters. And so she had to live up to this huge buildup that we had over the course of the first part of the story. And so when we first meet her, she had to be huge and terrifying. And you had to believe that this is, um, that this is the, 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 the queen of the beasts, right? Um, but then over the course of the story, you get to know her a little bit and, 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 there's, and, and we wanted to invite ultimately um, uh, audience empathy with the creature. And, and so then we started talking about like, what, how would she carry herself? What is her, what is her personality, you know, without overly anthropomorphizing the character? And we really wanted to imbue her with a sense of, 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 of age and wisdom and almost give her a regal bearing. And so we would look at, at animals like lions and tigers, where you, you look at those, those creatures and, and you can't help as an audience to, to imbue those qualities. Um, and and so, so we, if you look at the, at, the, at the way that she carries herself, at some of the, the structure of the shoulders, some of that is inspired by, by lions. And, and then that carries over, not just, and, and that goes from, that carries over from the design into the animation as well where we, had, we wanted to be very um, uh, nat- natural and animalistic in the acting as opposed to relying on something that felt more human. We didn't want it to be uh, a human in a, in a monster suit, you know. We wanted to be really subtle and, 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 and true to, um, to, to animalistic behavior. So we would talk about cats and lizards um, much more than we would talk about human actors. And, and even specifically the, the eyes, you know, every little thing in animation is a choice, right? Nothing just happens. So, and the eyes, of course, that's where the audience is going to be looking for a lot of the movie. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure out uh, how to approach Red's, Red's eyes um, because we, we didn't want to just turn it into human eyes, right? With the, with the, with the round iris. We like the idea of that more narrow cat-like iris as a way to, to make red feel more animalistic, but also feel a slight distance at first. You know what I mean? Uh, make 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 uh, red feel more like the other. You know um, that you couldn't possibly uh, forge an emotional connection with something like that. 
and then sort of overcome and then build the bridge and sort of get to to know and care about red on her terms as opposed to turning her into one of us um so the so um that we we poured over every aspect of the design i think one of the things that was that that was specific to this movie was because of how big red and a lot of the other creatures are in this movie you have to really design at different scales and imagine the camera at different distances from these creatures right so you have to imagine shots where it's really wide and the camera's very very far away from the creature and the design has to work it has to be uh, an appealing design and 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 feel plausible right um, but then, of course, there, there are plenty of shots where we're closer and you're seeing just portions of the creature. And there, as far as the textures and the design, it had to hold up and look good. And then you had to imagine shots because we have human characters that are interacting with the monsters. You have to imagine shots where the camera is very close to the creature and, and they just become sort of the background that's filling the entire frame. And then you have to have all the little nuances and details and scratches and imperfections that make you believe in in the creatures as well. So they had to really hold up from from any dis, from any, any distance from the camera. Um, and and again, you know, I, I would like to take credit, but I myself am am astonished by what our design team was able to pull off. And uh, would you also talk about the design of Young Macy? Yeah, well, um, we we definitely knew um, that that we wanted Maisie to be a character that was kind of a force of nature, you know, that she was, nothing was going to stop her. And, and that if she saw an obstacle, she was just going to go through it or over it or under it, she's going to find a way, you know? And, uh, and so we wanted her in the way that she carries herself to just, you just wanted to feel it. You wanted to feel that this is, this is not someone you would want to mess with. And, and I think her, her, her tenacity uh, as a character is the thing that makes her such a great foil for the Jacob character. Um, uh, Jacob is this seasoned hunter and he's, he's very, he's, he has a heart of gold. Um, and, uh, but he's very confident and capable and used to things going his way. Right. And, and suddenly he has this, this young girl running circles around him and has him back on his heels in a way he's never experienced before. And so it's kind of fun to take these, these prototypical heroes and, 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 and inflate their balloon a little bit and then pop the balloon, you know what I mean? And it's Maisie's job to pop the balloon of this sort of uh, uh, traditionally sort of masculine ego and, 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 and traditional hero. And, and so she had to be up, up to the challenge of that. And so I would say more in her animation than in her design, we, we really wanted to give her this feeling of, of ferocity, you know? And, and, but at the same time, she was someone who wanted to do the right thing. She had a sense of what was right and she was committed to that and nothing was going to stand in her way. And her sense of what is right and wrong evolves dramatically over the course of the story, but her tenacity and her drive and desire to, to do the right thing, um, that stays consistent through the story. Um, and so just in, in her expressions and her demeanor and the way she carries herself, you wanted to get a sense this was not someone who was going to be a pushover uh, by any means. The relationship with the two of them is so much fun to watch. Um, when you were making the movie, did they record together or were they separate? Always separate. And, and that's generally the way animation works. Not always, but generally. Um, and in this case, because we, we recorded so much of the movie during the pandemic, I don't think, right. I don't think they could have been more separate. 
Uh, we were recording people in New Zealand and London and here in LA and all over the world, you know, and uh, and so then it, it so we have to we 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 have our actors approach the lines from from different angles to, to allow us options as far as stitching the performances together um, because they are because they are literally never together. Um, and it's it, it, my job a little bit to be mindful of of how the performances will work together because I'm the one person that has the advantage of of, of hearing all the performances live, you know, um, and being able to give feedback and, and, and help guide the performances a little bit. Um, but but again, like the I, I, we were so fortunate to, to have to have found the cast that we did. And, and it's it's really now impossible to imagine these characters voiced by anyone else. The characters, the actors so inhabit these characters. And I think that I think that there's you just you feel that you feel that it coming naturally in a way that that Zaris Angel, who played Maisie, she has a real sort of um, a strong uh, she's passionate about what she does. And and she has a real strength to her that comes through in the character. Um, and and with Carl Urban, who plays um, uh, Jacob, you know, he, he himself is a really great guy. Um, you know, he's, he, he's a real workhorse. He, he had the most lines in the movie and, and at the end of all of our sessions, we, we, we do what we call, uh, the efforts where they have to pretend to fight sea monsters and, and fall off cliffs and get punched in the stomach and, and slash swords and throw spears and all that stuff. Right. And, and that can be a very exhausting uh, process for our actors and 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 and, be, and it becomes very physical and that Carl was always game and and never never uh, we never wore him out you know and so he's a hard-working guy and he's just a really good-hearted person and I think he, he can play a tough guy but you feel the goodness underneath it you know and I think that that really comes through as well um, and then Jared Harris who plays a Captain Crow is I do think like without hyperbole, I think he's one of our great living actors and he's able to bring so much dimension and complexity to this character. Um, and, and I think you really feel the, the, the years, you, you feel the, the, the experience that the Captain Crow has had and, and you feel all the complexity. He's able to convey a character that, that is um, authoritative, someone who would make sense as a captain of a ship that is revered and respected and very capable. Um, but you also get a sense of the of the 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 fact that he's someone who is um, driven by loss and sadness, and someone who is um, a victim in his own in his own way um, of of his circumstance, and uh, and so you ultimately empathize with this character, even though over the course of the story he does some fairly objectionable things. Well, congratulations on the film. Thank you so much for joining us. Really glad to see you again. Thank you. So it was so fun to talk to you and hopefully we'll see each other again soon. 